0: This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you once again for another 30 minutes of your precious time as we bring you our Thanksgiving edition of the Retail Politics Podcast, where we will once again talk about the politics of Native Americans. Native Americans, the first inhabitants of our country, continue to struggle having the highest rate of COVID cases among any ethnic group and the highest methamphetamine drug abuse as our nation goes through a racial reckoning. Today we have Kerry Lassard, Executive Director of the Native American Lifelines, a Baltimore agency that provides inner-city healthcare to Native Americans. Welcome,
1: Kerry. Hello, I stay, Jerry. How are you?
0: Yeah, well, welcome back. So interesting. Um, the COVID. We were talking about COVID a little bit. Um, COVID rates are highest among Native Americans of all ethnic groups. Uh, you're in the healthcare industry with Native Americans. Why is that?
1: Well, um, I, I'm going to give you two answers to that first of all I think often when people talk about Native Americans dying at a higher rate they are talking about Native people that live on reservations mm-hmm. um, actually seventy percent of Native people live outside of reservation communities they live in urban and suburban settings mm-hmm. and so you know I, I just want to put that out there in terms of folks that live on the red so, you know, if you've never been, uh, they can be very geographically remote places. You think mm-hmm. about Navajo Nation or, mm-hmm. you know, where my cousins live on the Fort Peck Reservation. And it's you have to drive quite a long way to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so you may not be near an Indian health service facility or any other kind of medical care The other thing is, is folks tend to live in um, multi-generational housing Mm -hmm. and the housing, you know, I I think of kind of where some other relatives live on Pine Ridge, very drafty places and it's very cold there. Um, I know an issue uh, on Navajo Nation, you know, there are still a lot of people, especially elders that have to haul water from long distances. Mm. So the things that we take for granted mm. are still uh, very much happening uh, throughout our reservations. And so, you know, geographic isolation, access to health care, poverty, um, you know, those, those are things that can certainly contribute to higher rates of um, COVID-19 infection and then fatality. But for the 70 percent Plus, of us who don't live uh, on reservations, one of the issues uh, is data. How are we counted? Oftentimes, Native people that don't live on a reservation aren't counted in data. For example, in Maryland, um, if I'm filling out a form, my options are white, Black, Asian, Latino, or other. So, who's other? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so that's really preventing our ability to really uh, reflect the number of Native people who are impacted by. By COVID, um, the the number of or the way, excuse me, people can count data can vary from you know county to county. So there's there's no uh, just one way to do things. What I will say, which I think is good news, is that American Indians, Alaska Natives have the highest rate of COVID nineteen vaccination of all other. Uh, ethnic groups. So uh, uh, the Fort Peck Reservation, for example, a recent uh, article that I read that was posted on the tribe's website or the Facebook page talked about how um, Native people and and Fort Peck have higher rates of vaccination than the whole state of Montana. Mm -hmm. So that just, you know, gives you some perspective, um, you know, the, the not so great news, but also the hopeful news.
0: And the University of Maryland, Baltimore, where you are, uh, they have the first regional clinic addressing COVID-19 uh, for Native Americans. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So that is an interesting story, um, sort of why that came about. Um, so I mentioned that Native people have the highest rates of vaccination, and that usually has to do with being vaccinated at Indian Health Service clinics or on their reservation. Mm-hmm. Um The federal government has a trust and treaty obligation to provide healthcare to tribal citizens. However, once people leave the reservation, um, access to healthcare is certainly not guaranteed and it can be very hard to access. So for the tribal citizens living in our area, and there are a lot serving the federal government in DC, the Indian Health Service uh, headquarters is in Rockville, um, Maryland. There are a lot of Native people living here, but no full ambulatory health care clinics. So um, Native people understood that, A, a treaty right to have health care. But second, tribes were able to determine, tribes and and tribal organizations and even urban Indian health programs were able to determine um, their priority uh, groups for vaccination. So for example, the state of Maryland identified, of course, elders, people with underlying conditions, but a tribe, for example, could say, well, we don't have a lot of fluent speakers of our language and we wanna protect them. So maybe, you know, we have an 18 year old who's a fluent Nakota speaker, and maybe we have an 80 year old. We just wanna make sure everybody who's speaking that language Fluently is protected, and so tribes made those types of decisions. So tribal citizens in our area knew that if they were to go home, they they wouldn't have to wait, and and that's kind of what we saw. People wanted to get vaccinated mm-hmm. uh, very badly. So um, because there's no health facility here providing direct medical care through IHS, we had to negotiate something um, between the state and the Indian Health Service, and our organization. We are really fortunate that University of Maryland, Baltimore, stepped in uh, to receive an allocation of vaccine and administer that for us. Because Mm. if they had not done so, I personally, every time I wanted to have a clinic to vaccinate people, I would have personally had to drive to Richmond, Virginia, Mm -hmm. to the Indian Health Service, um, Richmond Area Service Unit, pick up vaccine drive it back to baltimore find a a health provider who is willing to give the vaccine to our people Mm -hmm. and i would have to drive any unused doses back to virginia so you can see you Mm -hmm. know how impossible a situation um that would be so we we were very fortunate that um, our director of the Nashville Area Office, Dr. Beverly Cotton, our uh, urban area director, Jen Downs, uh helped work with uh University of Maryland and, and Francis Crevier at the National uh, Council of Urban Indian Health to make sure that we were able to get healthcare services for tribal citizens and descendants and family members um living in the area. Cause that's that's the other thing, you know. Um Mitakwe oyasin is something that, um, you know, we say it means we're all related. And so the Mm -hmm. idea is that if I'm living and working with uh, non-Native people, Mm -hmm. they getting the vaccine protects me too. And so we didn't just restrict it to only Native people. Uh, We, you know, if, if you're in a blended family, we'll vaccinate you. If you work in a Native serving organization, but you're not Native yourself, we will vaccinate you. So, you know that that really was so important to us. And, um, you know, and we of course continue our um, efforts to just try to encourage vaccination, to provide information about it. Um, I work very closely with uh, Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health, um, just to to get information that we can disseminate to the community that is trustworthy. We want to be the biggest source of information and not twitter so
0: <laughs> and uh <laughs> and uh how are native americans are they embracing vaccination
1: um for the most part yes i think like anything else there are some people it's i've described it like this it's like this weird Venn diagram where it you know people that wouldn't normally have the same idea so you have like the you know q folks then you've got the new agers and you've got native people. And oftentimes they wouldn't agree on much, but around vaccines like that Venn diagram becomes a circle Um, for some folks. They really um, don't trust uh, the vaccine, but again, uh, native people, I think in our planning at, at the state level in the state of Maryland, I think we were concerned that we would have a lot of vaccine hesitancy because of historical medical abuses. And that's not what we found. The Urban Indian Health Institute did a survey that saw over 75% vaccine acceptance Mm. rate among urban Indians. So um, our population has done a good job. Um, I think everybody who wanted to be vaccinated got vaccinated pretty quickly. Um, And now we're looking at boosters and then vaccines for our, our, our young people.
0: Do you see any more of these kind of regional clinics popping up across the country?
1: Um, Our program in Massachusetts may certainly do so. Right now, it's a little bit different that people who um, want to get vaccine, it's pretty plentiful and there aren't the kinds of restrictions that there were at the beginning of the vaccine rollout. So certainly we are are willing to do that. I know um, Maryland National Guard has reached out to us. They helped us provide vaccine uh, clinics to uh, some state-recognized tribal populations on the eastern shore of Maryland. Uh, we are in conversation with the Piscataway-Tannoy tribe to get a uh, another vaccine clinic available for them to do boosters, to vaccinate youth. Um, so, you know, we're looking forward to just making sure that vaccine is available to anyone who wants it.
0: So we are in a, um, I think we're probably in the the greatest national racial reckoning that we've been in since probably the civil rights. And that was an outgrowth of the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis uh, police officer. Is that reckoning spilling over to Native Americans, do you think?
1: The funny thing is, I think for us, it's never stopped. I remember uh, having a conversation with Carter Camp. Uh, he uh, has passed away. He's a Ponca citizen, one of the original members of the American Indian movement, who you know was at the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973, and here right. we are today. It's, it's mm-hmm. still feeling silenced. Certainly, mm-hmm. we've had moments around sort of environmental justice issues, um, and and have had some wins in terms of um, you know other issues around mascots and things like that. But I I think it's it's very difficult. If, first of all you know, Native people, and certainly the people that I know, we, we don't want to take anything away from um, the struggles of our um, Black relatives or our Asian relatives. We want to be supportive there. So we don't want to, you know, everybody's very sensitive about like, not making their issues about us. So we tend to want to be supportive. But at the same time, I mean, there are decades of Native people not being heard. Now, my personal opinion about that, um, you know, really is is sort of grounded in my trauma work, and I I really truly believe that one of the reasons that it's so difficult because it's sometimes even difficult to get, um, you know, solidarity from other communities of color mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Native people have supported, because the the identity of the native people is so often asserted through, you know, stereotype, through romanticism, fetishism even, that it's difficult for um native people to be seen, you know, as they are kind of in their their own light. I certainly remembered seeing that during Standing Rock that, you know, my nephew was there kind of the whole time, but when you would hear people talking about it locally, it would be the allies who, you know, we would kind of joke, you know, they'll like run over 10 like Native people to stand in front of the camera and say, what you're doing to Native people is wrong. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, the idea of kind of passing passing the mic. So, yes, I, I think it's, a, it's an ongoing conversation um, for us. Right now, you know, we really have been in the position to just offer solidarity and support um, to communities of color, particularly our um, Afro-Indigenous relatives who are kind of doubly marginalized. Um, But, you know, the, the idea of, you know, just kind of receiving justice for Native people, that's not something that's ever gone away.
0: And it's still a struggle with history. I know U.S. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren has uh, put in a bill that would create a commission to study uh, when the United States was taking Native American children and making them go to white schools. And it, I think the purpose was to make them more culturally involved in white and just kind of I guess they were saying inclusion, but, you know, it's been called cultural genocide because their uh, ways were taken away from them. Um, And it was an amazing, I think 83% of the native American children were moved to white schools by 1926. And uh, how important is, is, is keeping these things out front?
1: I think it's, very important. And I have a very personal connection to this. So uh, one of my relatives was a student at the Carlisle um, Indian boarding school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And the motto, you know, of of that sort of boarding school policy was kill the Indian and save the man. And the idea was that, you know, we, you can kill everything uh, that is native about the person and, and kind of reform them Uh, into, you know, a white person. But of course, you know, then often that left children kind of A, not parented, you know, they were parented Mm -hmm. by institutions where they were abused. Um, That's Mm -hmm. why we've lost a lot of our languages, um, ceremonial practices. Um, You know, in the, the case of my relative, the, you know, his Father and siblings that weren't in the boarding school—they all have their um, nakoda names. His name, Clark Gregg, mm. only exists in English, um, and mm. so you know that's something that you know I am very sad about. So he graduated. Sure. He he entered Carlisle at age fourteen, um, graduated in 1895, moved to Baltimore, um, married a, a nice Irish girl. Um, uh first generation Irish American and lived only uh 4 years after that. Um only 8% of students at Carlisle graduated, 20% ran away, and uh over 200 died there at the school. So I think I think it's important and again th- this is just um not just my opinion it's something that you know at at grad school was was what I researched. You know, the, the boarding schools really contributed to um, a lot of the problems that have carried intergenerationally through Indian country, that you don't feel like you fit in um, anywhere. You're not parented, and so you don't know how to parent. You have these horrible emotional wounds that you don't know how to properly address. So I think it's it's very important um, and, and kind of uncovering the truth of what happened. A lot of people don't know about the boarding schools and you hear yeah, sure. of the, you know, the bodies being found, um, you know, mm-hmm. in Canada, uh, more here. Mm-hmm. I think there were some in South Dakota or North Dakota. Um, so it's just a part of American history that a lot of Americans don't know about. And it, it's important to, to uncover that and then have uh, like a truth and reconciliation to, to heal around that
0: yeah what could come out of it? what could come out of a commission like that
1: yeah i mean i think um that you know then through something like that i mean first of all the the government has to acknowledge what it did and then you know are there things that we can do for example and i I hate always like throwing money into it but can we um you know amplify funding around um Language revitalization so that Native people mm-hmm. can have mm-hmm. their um, languages, um, you know, kind of brought back saved. and yeah. saved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there increased funding to uh, the Indian Health Service to build a, bo- a more robust yeah. behavioral health system to deal with these mm-hmm. traumas? Um, but I, I think, you know, and, and it, to me, it's kind of like a, a disease, you know, until I'm diagnosed with cancer, I don't know how to treat it. And I think it's the same thing here. Until you say, yes, this happened, this was an abuse, this is how it was caused, then you really can't even begin discussions on how to to address that. But I think Native people have to lead in those discussions on on what type of healing, you know, the communities impacted want.
0: And it's interesting because you, um, you hear people say, and I, I just heard a woman say this not long, too long ago, look, I didn't enslave the blacks. I didn't massacre the Indians. Why do I have to deal with this? And, and what do you say to that?
1: I would first paraphrase um, the Walker River Priute Chairwoman uh, Amber Torres, who reminded the Indian Health Service that all of the wealth from the United States, all the wealth that it currently enjoys, comes from Native lands, and Native people. So you, you you start with that, that, you know, an acknowledgement that you are benefiting from settler colonialism. You, you just are. I, I benefit from settler colonialism, even though, um, you know, I have Native people in my family, um, you know, the other part of my family, I mean, you know, my family came here um, during the the potato famine. So, I mean, we benefit, I benefit from settler colonialism. So, I mean, acknowledging that would be, you know, the the first place that I would start. Um again, you know, it's just important to understand the the full history of a place.
0: I've read a great book. It was called White Trash. And it was about the mm. history of poor whites. And, you know, they came over to America, uh, England, like Castro had once did, took all their criminals, sent them here to get them out of their country. And if I remember it right, so a lot of them settled in Virginia. They were starving. They they had no economy. And it was the Indians who taught them how to grow tobacco, which was first like the first big Product which basically allowed the nation to survive. Uh, so it, when you're talking about that, it, it stems from as that far back. Uh, there's a yeah. big yeah. There's a big debate in uh, California, a law school out there, the Hastings College of Law, and there's a big debate on whether they should remove Hastings' uh, name from the school. Uh, he has been, um, I guess, the evidence is showing that he orchestrated several Indian massacres out there, and uh, it's a prestigious law school Uh, vice president uh kamala harris graduated from there and i want to say she was not involved in any massacres i'm just saying Mm -hmm. that's that's the kind of people that were out there that graduated from there um and there's there's arguments like you know should we should we not and and the dean and the chancellor of the school uh the idiot i mean the very well well known Mm -hmm. man he said uh what would be accomplished by removing hastings name from this school what do you what do you say to him
1: well, I would say, uh, money changes everything because of a, As of yesterday, um, a very important donor to that law, law school, Joseph, uh, Kochet, Kochet, I don't know how to say his name, um, major donor said that he wouldn't want to be affiliated with anything like that. And so the board voted unanimously as of yesterday to change the name. So they have reversed course. So, um, again, I think it's all, based on wanting that gentleman's money. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, I get, we've had the same conversations, um, you know, here in Baltimore, you know, in little Italy with the Columbus statue. I mean, you you just, we have to think about the people that we want to honor. And it, it doesn't mean, you know, forgetting our, History. I mean, I always think that that's kind of a red herring argument. I mean, nobody's saying forget about the Civil War for you know, forget about you know these other things that have happened. But see them, you know, for what they were, and try to have like a multifocal perspective on on what happened. So, um, you know, I would say just you know, in search of truth, it's important to understand the multiple perspectives. But in this particular case, um, money sure made that uh, Dean theme always,
0: changes does. Mind. <laughs> always, always <laughs> does yeah <laughs> we we'll name it for the donor you know <laughs> That's a, um, and we, we talk about the same and you mentioned a little earlier is about the nicknames of uh, sports teams so we mm-hmm. know the Redskins became the Washington football team and the Cleveland mm-hmm. Indians they dropped their name to become the Cleveland Guardians and I was actually up at Cooperstown a couple weeks ago with my son and we went into the hat store and that guy said people were coming in for Cleveland hats, the old hats. And, and he was like, I, I can't keep just people are just coming in and scooping them up. But the one team that hasn't changed is the Atlanta Braves who won the world series this week. Uh, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think they, they all should, should go. The, the only, the only caveat I would say to that. And I, um, I went to the school at Florida Atlantic university, but I know um, I think it's, gosh, now University of Florida is the Gator. Um, I think it's FSU. It's the Seminoles. So so they,
0: yeah, they yeah, had Seminoles, a relationship
1: right. with the tribe that regardless of mm-hmm. what I think about it, the tribe, you know, kind of bought in to that. And, you know, the, the tribe gave consent to do that. And, you know, it's, it's really not my place to talk about the tribe's decision there. But um, I, I think, you know, all of the, those things go because, again, what that communicates is that I, not me, but that, that non-Native culture has the right to name us and to decide what we should be comfortable with. And that, that goes for any ethnic group, that it's okay for me to call you whatever mm-hmm. I want because I see you. Uh, in a lower social status. And I see you as somehow less Mm -hmm. human than I am. And I I think, you know, that's what it really reflects. Because when our youth see that, you know, that they can be caricatured and the, you know, the tomahawk chop, like, you know, that's done, um, it it just really is um, limiting um the potential of native people and really um you know reducing us to to caricature and and you know and that um i i don't know who i don't recall who said this but there was a wonderful quote that basically said when you turn a human into to a thing then uh the likelihood of, of violence you know you you open the door to that you make it more possible so when you reduce a person to a caricature whatever that that person is then then you make them more vulnerable and is that something we want to do mm-hmm. so um i, I think it's got to go
0: so uh, we were talking a little bit about the racial reckoning and there was an interesting article about the bear creek mm-hmm. massacre of 1863 and that happened during the civil war and there's a feeling that it didn't get a lot of attention because everybody was focusing on the civil war and in reading about it, I, I read that lincoln had actually ordered the hanging of 38 native americans which i just found mm-hmm you know, the Emancipator, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And is there a hope that looking at these kind of massacres will somehow translate into us um, more understanding or empathizing with the Native American population?
1: I mean, I I certainly hope it does. it's, It's interesting because I even until, I think up until my 20s, I didn't know the history of the Dakota 38. And there's a great documentary that you can watch and it's called the Dakota 38 um, about that, that was kind of, um, you know, started by Tayodate um, Duta. Um, so I think it, that's like his red nation is the, is the person's name and it's known as Little Crow's Rebellion. Basically, you know, the settlers came in, um, you know, starving and exploiting the native people and they fought back. And so that kind of kicked mm-hmm. off some of the events that led to this, um, you know, someone that I attend ceremony with is married to a Wabashaw, and Wabasha, uh, was one of the 38 hanged. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, again, it, you can meet the descendants of these people, um, today. So it's not as far removed as I think sometimes, you know, we, we think that it is I, again, uh, you know Paulo Freire would talk about the limit situations that if you uncover limit situations in what you're teaching or, or just you know as as people look at their lives, then they know how to do better. And I think the same is true here. When we really um, kind of take an honest look, which people don't want to do, um, but but take an honest look at our our history and you know just the, the good and bad of of, you know, people, then, you know, we have to figure out how we move forward. And is that the kind of person that we want to honor? And is that uh, the nation we want to be? I mean, yes, you know, Lincoln, the great emancipator, you know, known as that, but then was involved in this. And there are a lot of people that we look up to who have, you know, both those, uh, that kind of duality. Um, And we just have to reckon with it. First, that's the first step. I mean, I certainly don't know where we go with that. But I think until, again, you name that thing um, and see it for what it is, then you can't really hope to move forward.
0: And it even goes back to Washington. So Washington fought in the French-Indian War, and uh, people feel he actually set the tone for the you know, removing Native Americans from their, their reservations, and, and he really set the tone for all the presidents following him in terms of the hostility um, to the Native Americans. So we're talking about some horrible things. But what's going on good in the Native American population? What do you like that you're seeing out there?
1: Well, um, I think, you know, again, um, Native people um, are kind of at the forefront of climate justice. And right now that's, you know, that's really important that we have a reckoning with that. I mean, if you think of all the fires and, you know, the, you know, the flooding and, you know, just really extreme things, um, you know, Native people as the original stewards um of this land um kind of leading those things I, I think if if people would listen um you know that's that is is really important um the thing um i'm excited about legislation that um is being introduced by senator warren uh, it's called the care act actually uh mm-hmm. they, it was senator warren and representative cummings actually um, worked on this before his passing and it's kind of like the ryan white act to uh, address hiv this would address um substance abuse and provide wraparound services because we have a substance abuse epidemic um in the country and not just you know among native nations but uh what i appreciate about uh this and the way senator warren and and you know other folks have written it is that it does provide for native people and specifically urban native people um to benefit um from those things senator warren also with um i don't know if it was deb holland uh, before she became in the cabinet or sharice david but you know looking at um just kind of a similar you know that boarding school policy Um, You know, can we do a truth and reconciliation, um, you know, kind of situation? So I'm I'm curious to see what happens with that. But, you know, again, in my work, I'm looking forward to seeing the CARE Act um, move forward and then just, you know, talks about how we collect data um, in in this country. It's been exciting that, again, a lot of urban Indian organizations um, really mobilized people in our communities to participate in the census. So, uh, we see, um, you know, really where Native people are living and that, that will get the resources to the people that they need. So I'm, I'm glad to, you know, see those things, those things happening.
0: You were talking about substance abuse, and there was a recent medical journal that put out an article about the explosion of methamphetamine, which is speed and in in the hood, they used to call it crank. Mm -hmm. Um, But Native Americans were were a very big part of that increase. And why do you think that is?
1: Well, um, you know, so again, I've got some relatives that live on the Pine Ridge Reservation. If you think about um, you know, first of all, a lot of our reg- reservations are um, geographically isolated. So that is a great place to have a meth lab. Um, there are also jurisdictional issues over, you know, well, who um, who does law enforcement? Is it the tribe? Is it, you know, the federal government? Is it the FBI? It's, it's very confusing. And so this has been a great place for the cartels to come in in these kind of liminal spaces. Um, and, you know, that's a, a problem that's you know, being wrestled with at Pine Ridge. And I, my brother has sent me photographs of, you know, like little shrines, uh, like Mexican shrines that have come up in these, you know, in these places. So, you know, they really have a, a hold and then gangs come in and, you know, so it's just not right. a good situation. So I would say, you know, that the isolation and the kind of funky jurisdiction um, mm. is a problem. Uh, even the uh, Monacan, uh you know, I've heard from some, monican elders that uh, again, they're, you know, out past Lynchburg in the mountains, uh, you know, that it, it, again, that is a problem that they are worried about. So it, it just, it's it's unfortunate. In the city here, um, we don't, uh, uh, pills and uh, opioids are the big problem. Um, we sure, just see sure. like meth in the more as a club drug here. So that hasn't touched mm-hmm. us, but on the res, yeah, it's not, it's not good.
0: Yeah, well, hopefully they can target some of those care funds to um, you know to mm-hmm. this um, to this issue because it uh, it's exploding and um, it's just been a, a horrible thing. Yeah. Reading an interesting book called Braiding Sweetness and a uh, really nice read. It's a by a botanist. And I wish I remembered. Robin
1: name, but, Wall uh, Kimmer. Robin Kimmerer. There yeah. you
0: go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, the thing that was fascinating about it is she's just a beautiful writer. I'm like God. How did she learn how to write like this? I was jealous. <laughs> but um, one of the things that was very interesting was, um, I think, you know, when you were talking about the climate change, the book really makes you think about nature mm-hmm. and how we don't appreciate nature, including me. I'm an urban mm-hmm. guy. I'm bricks and concrete you know but it really made me think and one of the things she said that I, I really enjoyed she said you know when we sit down to give thanks um, we should give thanks to the soil mm-hmm. we should give thanks to you know to the maple um, and I think one of the things I had heard before and I, and I love this one is you know on Thanksgiving give thanks to the turkey that gave his life mm-hmm. you know so that you could sit out, at, uh, sit out at this table so let us give thanks to you for sharing <laughs> Sharon and and coming on the show again. And I hope you have a a wonderful Thanksgiving and uh, tell us a little more about the executive director of the uh, native American lifelines.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, thanks for the opportunity. Um, again, um, you know, I'm grateful to be in my role at Native American Lifelines. We are a Title V Urban Indian Health Program, uh, helping the United States federal government carry out its trust and treaty obligations to tribal citizens, uh, their descendants, and members of state-recognized tribes. So I'm really ha- uh, grateful to have the opportunity to, to serve the people in that way, and also to have a conversation with you about uh, our wonderful amazing beautiful people and our cultures
0: yes and they're lucky to have you we want to say happy thanksgiving to everybody out there and we will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the retail politics podcast until then always remember to read beyond the headlines have a great week and a super holiday with the front row award-winning reporter gerard shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.